Welcome back. It's me, Matt Tinney. And me, Niels Rosenbaum. He's a duck. And he's a cop. And this is part trois. Did I get that? Un de trois. I don't know. I don't speak French. Tres or three? Tres or three. This is part... I don't even know. We're going to go over the medications associated with ADHD, not associated, but used for treatment of ADHD. ADHD. Well, just the stimulants. There are other okay. medicines that are used to treat it. So I, I'll quickly go through the... So stimulants are what they sound like. They're stimulants. They're related to meth. Right. Methamphetamines. They're kind of related. I like where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the major class and the most uh, useful for ADHD. Right. Other medicines are... Um, blood pressure medicines happen to work. So okay. um, things like guanfacine and things like that can help. Uh, and then there's, uh, well, butrin can help. And then there's uh, atomoxetine, which is like a non-stimulant stimulant. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on those. Those are second-line treatments. Okay. And they work, but not quite as well. So I, I might use wellbutrin if I see someone who is kind of depressed and they also seem to have traits of ADHD that are stable over time. I'm like, oh, this could be a twofer. You know? Right. Okay. Um, but if I'm treating ADHD, I don't reach for Wellbutrin as my first choice. Unless someone's like, I can't be on a stimulant. I don't want to be on a stimulant. But I still want treatment, which happens sometimes. Um, but <clears throat> going back to this, so putting all those other ones aside, this is part is about stimulants. And so what's interesting about stimulants is if you watch, if you see any ads, it seems like there's a million of them, right? Right. And every time it's some happy mom and a kid that's super focused and doing great now. You know, it's just like they're constantly coming out with new ones, it sounds like. And so the thing that most people don't know is there are really only two medicines. Not really only. There are only two stimulants (laughs) that are prescribed. Which is what? Um. Adderall, so um, the ADD, it came out before they changed the diagnosis, so uh-huh. Adderall, which is just amphetamine salts. In a oh, movie. the name is ADD. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that was before it was switched to ADHD. It used to be called ADD. And so Adderall is one of them. They should have had to. Yeah. Had to yeah. <laughs> Silent H. <age. laughs> so there's, there's amphetamines okay. is one, and the other one is uh, methylphenidate. That's what's in Adderall. Ritalin. Ritalin. Okay. And Adderall is the uh, the um, amphetamines. Okay. So that's it. Those are your only two choices. And so now just a little bit of science. So with – This is when I wish I had a soundboard because that would have been a perfect – now just a little bit of science. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some weird We don't have any. No. Add it later. So <clears throat> look at your hands. And if you're driving out there, please don't look at your hands. But – they're not um, identical. What? <laughs> Your hands are not identical. They're called isomers of each other. They're okay. mirror images. Mm-hmm. So almost all medicines come in what are called isomers. There's a left-handed molecule and there's a right-handed molecule. Okay. They look identical. And there's L and S. So list and, and dext. So uh, L and D. So those are the two choices. So basically a right-handed molecule, left-handed molecule, and Latin. And so, so S-citalopram is Lexapro. Citalopram okay. is a mixture of Liz and Dex citalopram. Dex is, I think, right-handed, and, and I always forget. Okay. And so um, one has both the mirrors of each other, and one they take out half of it, and they just have the left hand instead of the right hand. Interesting. And okay. the left and the right hand – 
generally do about the same thing, but sometimes they could be pretty different. Um, <clears throat> and so with these medicines, there's left-handed and right-handed molecules, and then they put them in different combinations. All right. So that's one way that they come out with a new formulation. This has this many of the left and this much of the right. So for every three left, we have one right-handed. Okay. And this one has equal amounts, and this one has more right-handed. That's right just how these chemicals are designed. That you can manipulate them. Okay. So the chemical is one-to-one, and then they manipulate it. Okay. And then they rename the drugs, and they say that they have different effects, and they do all this stuff. And they do. Some of them last a little longer, and some of them kick in a little faster because the molecules are somewhat different. Right. But it's all amphetamines or methylphenidate. Okay. And they just mix and match them. So it's two drugs that they just kind of tweak a little. (laughs) And and then – and there's like over 30 prescribed name brand drugs, but they're really only two, uh, amphetamines and methylphenidate. And so the other way that they they adjust these medicines is with um, the delivery system. So they put them in wax or they put them in beads. Because if you take just amphetamines, they kick in in like half an hour or so, and then they die off in like four hours. Okay. But if you put them in a little special capsule with wax or with, you know, they get pretty fancy. This little beads and this kind of thing. Or sometimes they even add an extra molecule. That's the one one of the new drugs adds right. an extra molecule. Like I'm, the, and so then you have your body has to first snap off that first molecule, and then it has the drug, and that just slows it down. Okay. And so, but still, it's the same medicine, but now in a different package. So with those variations, you have all these drugs, and they're constantly coming out. But it's still just two. Right. And all the clinicians know that. It's like, okay, I tried this class of medicine. Now I'm switching to the other one. Neither of them worked. Like if you try one, you've tried them all, essentially. Interesting. Um, The good news is that they work. So it's like a 70%, if I remember correctly, uh, response rate. Which is really high. Yeah. That's high for any medicine, anywhere. And it's particularly high for psychiatry. The only thing that's as good is actually ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. For ADHD? No, not for ADHD. Okay, just, just as, as a, a treatment. treatment. Okay. <laughs> so what you do is someone comes in, and you start them on a methylphenidate. You've got about a 70% chance of it working. If it works, then you tinker with, oh, when do you want it to start? How fast do you want it to start? How long do you want it to last? And that's it. Okay. And, that just and if it doesn't work, you can switch to the other one. Same deal. Oh, we tried the short acting. It seems to work. Should we do the short acting twice a day, three times a day, or do a long acting? Should we switch up the, you know, the isomers a tiny bit? Right. But that's sort of all secondary. It either is going to work or it's not going to work. What happens if neither work? Then you go to second-line medicines. Okay. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, it's 70% chance for the first one, and I think it's then another 70% chance for the second one. So that's a pretty right. good chance. It's high. yeah. And, you know, these those 70% are based on arbitrary cutoffs. So for some people, it might work a little bit. And right. You try the other one. That works a little bit more. You know, I mean, it still might not be you made the study and it's you're in remission, but it still helps. Yeah. And you can raise the dose. You can do all sorts of crap. So that's it. I mean, that's the whole talk on these medicines. I mean, the other thing which is interesting is Concerta is a very popular medicine. And, and this one's always interesting because it comes in a capsule. Okay. And so it lasts 12 hours. A- and what it does is it takes the normal drug, but it has it in a little um, 
like a little squeeze bottle kind of. Like there's a hole in the end of the capsule. And as it goes through <laughs> your body. It's just slowly coming out. It, there's like uh, something that expands as it gets wet, you know, it expands. And it slowly pushes out the drug. And then you poop out the pill. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel like a lot of pills might have that. Yeah, so it's just a delivery system. that It's the same exact drug, but now it's called Concerta. They charge ten times as much. And the only it's advantage is it lasts, a, yeah, it lasts a little longer. But what you really could do is just take the other medicine twice a day or three times a day. Interesting. Yeah, but that's a big advantage. Being able to take a once-a-day medicine is a big advantage. Right. And they cash in on it. And they call it something different, and they market the crap out of it. And so the, what I found so interesting, and this is what we can kind of um, start to wrap up on a little bit, but there's a new medicine that I don't even know how to pronounce, but it's called Evecchio. Common so spelling? E- <laughs> E-V-E-K-E-O. So it's it's half dextro and half levo. So that it's... Um, you know, not these two mirrors. Right. So it's it's equal. Where other ones, um, for example, I'll try to see. They have they have more of one or the other. So like dexedrine um, is a hundred percent dextroamphetamine. People don't really use dexedrine anymore. Adderall, the most common one, is a three to one ratio. So it's three left uh, right hands for every left hand. Okay. That's the one that most people are used. That's the go-to one. Um, so this new one, Vecchio, is a one-to-one. That sounds good, right? Right. But what's interesting is one-to-one is sort of like the natural state, right? And so yeah. this medicine, which is now being marketed as a Vecchio and being is very expensive and is under patent and is being pushed by the drug companies pretty fiercely so that they can make money, guess when it was originally released? Last year? 1935. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it was first. The exact same chemical was okay. released with a different name in 1935, and it probably had a different indication. So you, well, how are they you able can to get a new because you can get a patent with a new indication. What does that mean? So I release, uh, you know, ibuprofen. Let's say okay. it's for headaches, and now I discover. I don't know if you can do it with ibuprofen, but now I discover that hey, it helps with depression. And there is some proof that it, that it helps with the depression. So I'm now going to call it dbprofen, and it helps with depression. I can market it that way, and now it's patented. And you didn't have the original idea for the original ibuprofen. You're a whole other company, have yeah. nothing to do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know enough so about strange. the, the okay. but yes. Right. Yeah, they do that all the time. Or, or you, you do that with like McDonald's or, you take, or Coke. Yeah, yeah, delivery system is one way to get a new right. uh, drug, and the other is um, uh, new indication. So, do like a well, half, butrin is a good example. Half aluminum can, half glass, <laughs> and sell Coke. I'm going to call it something else. Well, butrin is another example. So, well, butrin, you know, is also used for um, smoky cessation. Right. So it has a different name, and now it's patented. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. okay. So, <coughs> all right. Someone stole someone's idea, and they're making a lot of money is what you So, Iveco came out. And what's interesting is it, at that time it was called Benzedrine. And it became a, a drug of abuse because people didn't know what it was for, and it wasn't you know. So people used it to stay awake. Essentially, that's what they okay. used it for. So it became more. Uh, it wasn't regulated. The like same your whole way. no dose uh, pitch earlier. <laughs> yeah, pretty uh-huh. much. And so, but caffeine is pretty abused, you know. Right. And so, 
but so they were abusing it though for the effects of like staying awake. Yeah, staying okay. awake and kind of being up. And so, what I also think it became popular like in the '60s and '70s. I think you know, like uh, the president uh, Nixon liked these drugs a lot. Really? Um, yeah, and they were called bennies. You remember hearing that term, bennies? No. Okay. I, and I've seen it in movies. I'm not old <laughs> yeah. enough to be like, yeah, yeah. I'm doing some uh-huh. bennies. Yeah. So, so they were called bennies. And just a sort of a trivia thing is Elton John's song, Benny and the Jets. Yeah. Sing it for us. Benny, <laughs> Benny, Benny and the Jets. Oh, yes, dun, yes. dun, dun. <laughs> I love that song. And that, that was about. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know. That's about the, <laughs> that's about the drug Vecchio. Evecchio. It's the same drug. It's about Benny's. Interesting. Or Benzedrine. Do you think they're releasing this because of the new movie about Elton John? They should, right? Is that what this is? It's like at the same time? But, you know, it works for for ADHD. So it's a good medicine. But do you need to pay that extra amount? No. I mean, it's insane. Do they still market the other one, the Benny's? No. Benzedrine. So I don't you, think Benzedrine wanted wanted see is it in, even in that there. combination. You'd have to go in this new format. Yes, I believe so. Benz. So yeah, in it's these not, ones, it's not in the pharmacopoeia. What anymore. is the new Elton John movie? Is it Rocket Man? Or Rocket something? Man. Yeah. Is that what they're going to call these ones? We'll <laughs> do some Rocket Man. <laughs> Maybe. I never knew that about Benny and the Jets. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I read this article. Wait, in the article it talks about this. In this, like. Medical Journal, they're like, let's talk about Elton John's Benny and the Jets. Yeah, isn't that funny? Really? Yeah, because it's a, it's a company that takes no money from pharmaceutical agencies. Right. So if I was taking money from a pharmaceutical agency and I was doing a study on Evecchio, you think I'd mention that it first came out in 1935 and was, a, was abused. No. Yeah, no. But That's why I like this journal because it gives you – If I was Paramount Pictures really wanting to secretly promote my new movie Rocket Man, they might I would call Carlisle this and be like, hey, make sure you put Benny and the Jets in there. It's possible. It is It is a little coincidental, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. I read that and I thought, oh, that movie's coming yeah. out. I want to see, see? it. You're like, oh, they don't <laughs> take money from – They're manipulating my yeah. mind. They don't take money from pharmaceuticals, but they do from other companies' pharmaceutical zones like Universal Pictures <laughs> or something. <laughs> That's true. It's our, no, our kinda, next conspiracy theory. I kind of really want to see that. that I movie. do. I actually really like Elton John. He's good, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's a little odd. Oh, you don't say. But I think he's interesting. And he, he's, he's the rocket man. He wrote, he's very elaborate. He wrote or, all the uh, music and he had a, a lyricist that worked for him. That I did not realize. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Because the lyrics are really good. And, right. And they're all kind of similar. So yeah, he stuck with one lyricist, I think, for his whole career. I mean, that would make sense yeah. if you want your music to kind of stay friends. the same. Yeah. I'd hope so. 15 minutes. Oh, Niels has actually set his timer this time it's been to make sure minutes. that we stay on time. Is there anything else we wanted to discuss? Let's discuss some Elton John right now. <laughs> what is your favorite song? You know what just came on the radio the other day? Daniel? That's a nice song. Yeah. Did you see the movie um, Almost Famous? The Tiny Dancer? Yeah, yeah, I like that song a lot too. Yeah, I yeah. do too. I like that in that movie. Yeah, that's. I was like, it's that was a, the first time I was like, hey, Elton John's pretty cool because yeah. these cool guys are singing. It, right. You know what I mean? Because when like, I was a kid, that wasn't cool. Right. Elton John wasn't cool. <laughs> You're like, it's okay. I can be accepted now. Listen, to Elton John. <laughs> I don't know why I always liked Elton John ever since I was a little kid. Really? Yeah. God, you know what we could talk about in another episode is uh, 
Michael Jackson. Oh, he he's interesting. Yeah, it's bad. Actually, that'd be a good one. Okay. Even there, there's a lot of like all that medicine stuff that he yeah. took. I don't know that. And, yeah, propofol. And kind of, you know, his story, it, it's kind of trauma based. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it's I don't awful. think people realize. That. I mean, I'm no scholar on Michael Jackson, but he's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You just want to talk about him because he stole the, the rights of the <laughs> Beatles and it made you mad. Oh, he did, didn't yeah. he? He stole it. He paid for them. Well, he paid for it. Yeah. I'm going to take my best friend's stuff and you can't use it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. Well, c'est la vie. <laughs> c'est la vie, c'est French. Si, c'est la don't vie. Les élèves Those are all of the little things. What does that mean? Kid, let the good times roll. Oh, that's a very Cajun kind of yeah. thing, too, isn't it? But say la vie. Let's hear your Cajun up accent. I'm not in his old medicine. <laughs> the Hades, you don't affect me no more. <laughs> <laughs> I saw something about Michael Jackson. Oh, this is... <laughs> now, here we go. Side joke again. But do you remember the, the, the famous lean? I forgot what it was. Maybe it was Billie Jean video. Okay. He's oh, yeah. He lean. He patented that. No, he stole that from Fred Astaire, did But that? no, like, it was a shoe. So they got this, this patent, and it was patented under him for a special oh, shoe. Oh, he leaned on, he, he didn't just like, lean, it was both feet were on the ground right. right next to each other. And they're like, how did he do this lean? And it was actually, like, this type of screw that was in the, the, the floor uh-huh. that, that you would lock your shoe in on a dance move, and then it would catch so that you could lean. And he yeah. patented it. I was like... Oh, and there's something to talk about, like, he had a bunch of different patents for stage performance. Really? Yeah, I would have never guessed that. He was a smart guy. A super-duper talented. Yeah. But troubled. Very troubled. Sad. What about Elton? Troubled or not troubled? I don't know. Almost, I know almost nothing about Elton John, other than he's, like, he's gay, a... right? What? Wasn't he gay? Not that there's that, anything wrong with that. Yes. And so he was gay, and... He was more straight ahead. I know. Oh, you know, I do have one story. My, I think my aunt played with him because she was. What? She's a she's a jazz musician, or was it her or a friend of hers? But anyway, he was very like in the beginning of his career when he was young and just trying right. to start out. He was pretty straight laced, like nor, like if you look at pictures of when he was really young. Right. Wasn't he was just, so. He didn't like, start his career flamboyantly. He started right. just like a really good musician, and then he kind of became more and more flamboyant. Right, um, it's kind of like Lady Gaga. I don't. I think didn't Lady Gaga right from the start come out as like? No, a, there's like videos of her trying to play at music festivals, just normal hair, everything really? like that. And then she kind of took on a persona. Oh, smart! Yeah. She's super smart too. So was he. And then I knew that thing about the uh, he had a a writer. Yeah, I never. I honestly never knew that. I, mean, I thought I'm, he, I'm assuming that's yeah. true. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I thought he wrote his own ago. lyrics and music and everything. No, I like Candle hey, on the Wind the, too. Candle on the Wind is a good song. Yeah. Candle on a Wind is a good song. You ever see Parks and Recreation? Yes, but not. <laughs> did you ever say? see the uh, the one with the horse, the pony that uh-uh. dies? No, did oh, they play funny. Candle on the Wind? They, they, he comes uh. up with another song that he says it's going to be 10,000 times better than Candle on the Wind, and <laughs> yeah. he named it 10,000 Candles in the Wind. <laughs> and it sort of sounds the same, but it's catchy. Right. And it's, you know, it's just that has nothing to do with anything. But there's like a little toy pony. And everybody in the town is, like, absolutely amazed by it and thinks it's the greatest thing ever, yeah. and they all love it. And there's this one guy, he's the straight man, he's like, I don't get it. <laughs> it's well, like, I just don't get it's it. It's just a pony. I don't oh. see it at all. So, I'm going to totally listen to some Elton John. Goodbye, Norma Jean. <laughs> I never knew you. I Rocket Man's a good song. Benny yeah. the Jets is a good song. I had a friend who really liked it. 
It, it's a, it's like one of those uh, guilty pleasures. You don't really, yeah. You don't openly tell like this is going to come back to buzz. You guys like Elton John, <laughs> but it's like a guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Like and no, he's talented. Yeah, I mean, no he writes one, good like, songs. Comes out and be like, you know who I'm a fan of? Elton John. <laughs> Does it Isn't never he like still up? touring or something? Yeah, he was, he had a stint. I He's think got to be like seventy something. Yeah. Right? yeah, but him and the Titanic singer, what is that lady's name? Oh, she's I do not like her. He, New oh, I dislike They her. all were like doing she's Vegas so stints. weird. It looks like Young. Skeletor. Wow, wow! That, I shouldn't say this because yeah, there's people Celine. out there listening that probably love Celine Dion. Yeah, she has a huge. Everybody fan can have their own. I can't believe you dislike her so much. I don't dislike. I mean, I don't. Is it because she's Canadian? And you're doing this. She married some dude that's like 30 years older than her. Okay, I guess that's that's why you dislike her. No, that was just a fact. (laughs) Like, why do you like her? She married. Why don't I like her? I think there's a reason I don't like her. I also just don't like her music. Right. But her, I guess I don't know. I have nothing against her. I I change everything. Oh, here we go. She's okay. (laughs) I would not pay for a Celine Dion concert. Wow. I hear they're amazing. I think if I got free tickets, I might go. But probably not. Depends where. If you got free tickets to see Celine Dion, you wouldn't go. Depends where the seats are, where the concert is. I'm not a fan of hers either, but I would go because she's just so famous. Like, I'm not a fan of country music, but if if I got free tickets to Garth Brooks, I would totally go see him. Would you? Yeah. How about Metalachi? Totally. (laughs) I would pay to go see Metalachi. (laughs) That was one of the best concerts Metalachi ever. was good. Yeah, I really like Metalachi. If anyone listening, <laughs> look up Metalachi, like blending metal and mariachi. It's and good. just watch some of their stuff. Yeah, it's good. And if you can see them live, it's relatively cheap concerts. And it's, it's close. Yes. You're it's close like a, by the, You're like watching a, a play. It's, it's like, like a play. Or what did you saw? Live like, karaoke. It is like, oh, yeah. that was great. Yeah. Do you know that there is an actual thing called that? Like, so I like punk rock, and okay. there's a, a band called Punk Rock Karaoke, and they okay. tour, and that's it. You can get up and sing karaoke, but you have a full band. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, they have a list of songs that are all punk, and so, like, you pick, and then that's the whole band. That's a great band, idea. And then you are on stage, and you have to be the lead singer, but it's a full band. Oh, that's How cool of an idea is we that? We should go see them. Yeah, I wish they would come here. They'd probably go to Denver. They probably do, actually. Yeah. But I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't taken off more. For other genres. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm surprised, too. That but it is probably You hard. feel like a real rock star. Yeah. You get to like, play out your fantasy. people yeah. love karaoke because they feel in the moment. But imagine like that feeling, but you actually have a live band. Like you're the front man. Yeah. yeah. And the, they're probably really good musicians. So if you mess up or go too right. fast or, you know. Well, it's interesting. Or they this can one, back you up with vocals yeah. if you need it. Yeah. Well, this one is actual like musicians from punk bands. I would together. go to that. The right. only punk I know is like uh, the Clash. Does that count? They have the Clash. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's it. it. Guys, trip. What are you guys doing? We're gonna go do punk rock. But it would karaoke. suck if you go there and you pro- don't get called. Yeah, They're like you signed up last. No, because unless there's only like ten people going <laughs> right. to the show. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting. We can rent them for a party. I wonder how much that would cost. Probably not too much. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone would be like, "What are they playing? I've never heard this song." Do you in know my the life. name of the? The group? band? Yeah. They're called Punk Rock Karaoke. That's what it's called? Yeah. And it's like... It's a pretty straightforward name. <laughs> so there's an uh, old band called Agent Orange. Okay. And there's an old band called The Germs. Okay. And then there is a band called Bad Religion. Um, okay. These are all punk bands, and different members of those bands have been... Born this. Kind of, yeah. Sure. So a lot of them like have been in some of these other bands. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Total side check. Back Very to ADHD. Good. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this three-part series, right? 
I hope so. Yeah. And if you guys have any questions on ADHD or any kind of mental health or law enforcement thing, please send it to me at ask at gocit.org. And if you guys want to get a hold of Doc? Doc at gocit.org. And D-O-C. please, doc at gocit.org. Yes, Doc. You confused me on that one. <laughs> Stay tuned for another recording from the CIT Echo and learn a little bit more there. Check us out at GoCIT.org. Follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Bye. Okay, so I'm going to present on um, basically uh, interactions. Um, and so I titled this The Way You Make Me Feel. And the question is, when you interact with someone, are you the influencer or are you the influence? So just a little bit about myself. Um, I mainly work at the VA. Um, I'm a part of a team that sounds very similar to your Beacon team. Um, we're called the Gateway Clinic. Um, and what I do each day is I come in, I meet with the attendings for the medical floors, um, discuss their uh, patients that they have. I answer ER consults. Um, most of the patients that I deal with are psychotic, demented, under the influence of substance, suicidal, homicidal. I decide about acute psychiatric versus involuntary, and I also do inpatient and outpatient capacity evals and cognitive evals for neurology. So it's me, another psychologist, and a rotating psychiatrist. Um, so we kind of do all that for the facility. And then on the other, where this is actually an excerpt from, is I train West Virginia law enforcement officers. Um, we have a centralized training academy here in which every officer, whether you're city, county, um, capital, PD, or state police, you go through, um, depending on the week, 16 weeks or 24 weeks. And then I work with various agencies in providing just mental health training, how to identify a crisis, how to de-escalate it. Um, what are the resources, what does substance use look like, and, and, and how that can affect interaction, um, which kind of goes parallel with what I do day-to-day -day, um, with the VA network. So starting off here, um, here are the learning objectives. Um, we're going to review influence theories and how they pertain to communication, specifically verbal de-escalation techniques, since this is what we're talking about here um, with the CIT network. We're also going to discuss a framework of social exchange that was um, presented in 2001 about uh, civilian versus law enforcement or first responder and kind of break those down and discuss or I'm going to go over the techniques to maybe decrease the negative effect in these exchanges. And I can't keep the chat box up while maneuvering this PowerPoint, so please someone interrupt me if there's a question that comes up. Um, the first thing that I want to start off with is what is social influence? So in psychology, we like to operationally define, and sorry if I didn't mention that, I'm a psychologist, um, the change in behavior that one person causes in another, and it can be intentionally or unintentionally, and it's normally as a result of the way that the changed person perceives themselves in relationship to the influencer. So it's this dynamic interaction that can be conscious or, or unconsciously done, um, but it is this, this active process. And social influence is made up of uh, certain factors. And the first one is attitude. So that's basically how you, um, feel or evaluate um, towards a person, thing, or idea. And we have attitudes about almost anything that we do. 
um, even if it's not really caring at all, it's still this like, oh, well, I don't, I don't care to sit through this meeting or I'm dreading this meeting. Um, I don't like this person. I enjoy this person or, or whatever it is. Um, the other factor is persuasion. Um, and the goal of this is usually to change someone's behavior or attitude, whether it's to persuade them to view things like yourself or another way or an alternative. And the communication of this focuses on non-coercive verbal influence. So there's a lot of research on if you, if someone knows that you're trying to change their idea, you can get a lot of pushback with that or their uh, attitude towards something. And so a lot of this, when you're just trying to influence, you're trying to kind of do it behind the scenes. You're trying to kind of make, have some steps to, to change um, how they're, they're behaving or, or what their thoughts are. And there are two routes to this. Um, there's a central route and a peripheral route. The central route is what you say. It's your exact words, the phrasing. Um, if you say it uh, in a lot of words, if you say it in just a few words. And the peripheral is really what you look like. So how your environment is. And it can be things about yourself. Um, it can be what you physically look like, uh, your demeanor. Or it can be things in the environment that you necessarily can't control. So what the temperature is, what it smells like. Um, there's this whole thing of research about, um, you know, what color schemes to use when you're having certain meetings. And, and it's funny because uh, we recently changed offices and the interior design person, because we're mental health and because of what, like, I had to pick from certain, like, I couldn't just say, hey, I want a purple room or a black room like she's like no it's these like light colors and pastel it's like this whole like research behind what color scheme to have in our clinic um, and when you're looking at social influence it really is a dance and I say this a lot to students whether they're interns and residents or they're police officers or first responders going through my class is that you're constantly kind of moving and assessing what your next step is and facing how that person responds to it. So you're really trying to figure out what to say, but also how to say it and, and kind of figure out um, how that is landing with the person that you're talking to. So dynamic interactions, these can be very simple. These can be very complex, but I always like to kind of take things outside of mental health or outside of what I'm talking about and then relate them back. And the first one that I have of a dynamic interaction is if you think about temperature. So say you have a room that's hot. So the thermostat kicks on the AC and it cools the room. And then that gets fed back to the thermostat who reads that the room is cool. So it turns off the AC and you may have this perfect temperature for a while, but then without any type of AC on, the room will, will get warm again. And it's this constant interaction between the AC, the room temperature and the thermostat. And sleep, theoretically, there's all kinds of exceptions that can affect our sleep, but theoretically, the more sleep that you get, the less tired that you'd feel. And then the less tired that you'd feel, the less you would sleep. And then the less you sleep, the more tired you feel, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's this sleep-wake cycle that um, one of the presenters talked about a couple of weeks ago about how these two things interact. And if we're talking about communication, it's another dynamic interaction, except it's more complex. So if I'm the speaker, I say something to you, and I need to move the photos because I can't read my PowerPoint. I say something to you, 
and you figure out what you think I mean. You interpret that. So then you respond to me, and then I interpret what I think you mean, and then I respond to you. And so it's these constant steps of when you're communicating with someone, it's a constant evaluation. And so if we break apart that communication one, you have the I say something, you interpret, you say something, I interpret. This can go really well, or this could go, you know, pretty bad kind of quickly. So when it goes well, you know, say I'm talking to you and I say something very calm and I'm respectful. So you interpret that as, wow, she's really listening to me. So then you respond with maybe a better tone or a calmer tone or, or more appropriate. And then I'm like, oh, okay, they're considering my point. So then I say something very calm and very respectful and you can have this nice snowball of this really positive interaction. But it can also not go well. And it can kind of look like this. So I could say something maybe abrupt. Maybe I'm trying to multitask. Maybe I'm frustrated at you or something else. And you interpret that as I'm dismissing you. So then you respond with tone or anger because you're like, hey, you're not paying attention. And then I interpret that of like, oh my God, they're being unreasonable. So then I end up using more tone. And so you can have this snowball that occurs where you get off on one wrong foot and the conversation just kind of goes downhill. And you know, those examples are, are all or none terms. And the truth is a lot of times when you interact with someone, you can kind of have combinations of both. You can start interacting and it, it's going well, and then you'll have a little slip up and then you'll have to get it back on track. But the point is, is that someone has to notice that someone has to realize like, Ooh, okay, we're, we're going in a direction that I don't want to go. And so if I mentioned influence, I also need to mention control. And so technically in those other dynamic interaction examples, you know, you control the thermostat on the temperature one and the thermostat then controls the AC unit, you know, based on the parameters that you give it. And theoretically you control your sleep and wake cycle. You know, once again, there are exceptions, medical, mental health, um, psychosocial stressors. Um, but, you know, we were talking about rafting. I went rafting this past weekend. It was my choice to sleep until noon. I could have made myself get up. And so therefore it was my consequence that I could not go to sleep Sunday night, even though my alarm went off at 5.15 on Monday morning. So that, that sleep and wake cycle, like it kind of still is in my control. But in communication and specifically de-escalation, it involves another person. And that ends up taking control really out of it. Um, because you, you can't control them, you can influence them. And if we look at the control and influence spectrum, you know, when you talk about someone else, you can't control them, but you can influence their behavior. And so when you try to control someone, if you really try to like, no, I am going to force them to do this. If we break that apart of what that interaction is from like a social psychology perspective, is it's really you administering a pressure or a force to purposely cause this person to adapt or change their behavior. So take the example of, you know, if you're trying to control me um, to make me leave this room. And so even if you administer an actual physical force and you put your hands on my shoulders and you're pushing me out, you still really aren't controlling my brain to not fight you back. It's still a like, am I going to respond to that pressure 
that force and then concede it and, and move out of the room? Or am I going to say no and not adapt my behavior? Um, so there still is, is an influence there. It's just kind of a different type. And if we're looking at you, you know, you, you can control, but you have to be aware that you can be influenced by others. And I think a lot of times this is a part that's missing and it's a very important part because if you're not aware that a situation and people that you're dealing with, that they can have an effect on you, which then can affect your judgment and your presentation and, and how you're thinking and how you're acting. Um, then you run the risk of, of being influenced in a way that, that may be not to the betterment of the situation. And I really like this quote here. And it says that when you try to influence someone, you take responsibility for adapting your own behavior. And it's a more internal process. And I think it's a more active process of you kind of taking responsibility that the initial step is about what you can change with the goal of then facilitating change in the other person. And I use this example when, um, say I assess someone in the ER and I'm like, oh, okay, they, they need to go inpatient. They need to go to acute. Um, there's a certain balance that I have to walk. Um, I can, in my head, know that I've met criteria for an involuntary admission. I can put them on a hold. But in West Virginia, in the state, you can't involuntarily commit someone who voluntarily agrees to go inpatient. So you have to give them the choice and there are just certain, there are very few exceptions to that, but I also can't coerce them. So I can't say, Hey, you go inpatient voluntarily or I'm going to commit you. Even though I know in my head, like those are my two options. And so I kind of have to figure out like what steps I can take and how I can change and build rapport with them and talk about, Hey, this is my recommendation. I really think you should go and then see what their response is going to be. So, with that framework, looking at the civilian and law enforcement, this can be in a crisis or any emotionally charged situation. And I didn't develop this. Um, this was developed from the late Richard Sherman. He worked with Colorado, the National Institute of Corrections, and they developed a statewide um, training in 2001. And it was basically a framework that through his research and his many years of working um, in this setting, kind of would use to describe with officers of like how they needed to be aware of their interactions when dealing with inmates. And here you see, you know, at baseline, if a civilian or a subject is calm, you know, it's really easy for the officer or first responder to be supportive. And then level one is that, you know, if someone's really anxious, it's still pretty accessible for the officer to access that empathy. Um, think of if someone's just been in a car accident, you know, and they're really like shaken up, you know, okay, okay, calm down. You know, like the, there's ways to, to really, that active listening is really accessible. It's, um, you're able to kind of understand what that person's going through. But then it, as you move down, you have anger. So if the civilian or subject is getting angry, um, the officer is at risk of getting anxious. And, and this is kind of conceptualized because they recognize the anger they recognize that violence can come after. So they're already thinking like, okay, what's my plan A? What's my plan B? How am I, how am I going to deal with this? Um, and then as the person starts to exhibit hostile or violent behaviors, the officer is most at risk of exhibiting or experiencing fear and then anger themselves, which has its own kind of set of consequences. And, and all this stuff here, there are nice cute little boxes. Uh, 
typically we don't stay in cute little boxes when it comes to this stuff. So it is a spectrum. Someone can be relatively anxious, but then have this kind of like um, part of anger and then they'll come back to being anxious. Same thing with, with the officers. Um, I also warn um, students and stuff in, in my class about this is that it's easy to go down this cycle. It's easy to go anxious and anger and, and hostility. It's harder to go up. You know, it's harder to kind of calm someone down. Same thing from the officer standpoint. So just being aware that it is an active process. And also that it can be um, derailed by external uh, parties. Um, one example of this that I have just from my line of work is I got called to um, meet with a guy in his hospital room who was really upset, really, really upset that he wasn't getting discharged with pain meds and he was calling uh, everyone, any administrative person, he was threatening to call Congress and representatives. And so our uh, facility director called and they're like, hey, will you go talk to this guy? And he was angry, but he was also upset. And, and I wasn't validating his behaviors because he was throwing things at our nursing staff. But I was validating, you know, that he was upset, and he was scared, and how was he going to manage his pain. And I had just kind of gotten him down to where like he wasn't, his voice wasn't raised anymore. We were kind of talking about like, well, what are you going to do when you leave here? Because you're going to leave here, like you are going to discharge. Um, and one of the nursing staff that he had gotten into it earlier came in the room and kind of very dismissingly like put something on the table and was like, here, you forgot this. And it just unraveled like all of my work, everything that I had just really put in a lot of effort to do. Um, and so it's something to be aware of that once you are working with someone on this and trying to influence them, um, it can kind of uh, get derailed. So any questions before I start the level by level breakdown? Okay, then I will go ahead and start. So with level one, as I said, someone is anxious and anxiety is this kind of dread and helplessness. It's not a very fun emotion because a lot of times you feel like things are happening outside of your control. And you'll notice that someone has a noticeable change in their behavior. Maybe they're crying, maybe their voice is raised, um, shallow breathing, pressured speech. And the anxiety indicators kind of vary by person. So you can have someone that does like nervous laughter or really fidgeting. They may like deflect topics like you want to talk about, hey, what's going on? What's and they'll be like, oh, but let's talk about this other thing. Um, you can also see this in, in cognitive disorganizations, which is stereotypical of schizophrenia and some of the other more severe mental illnesses or intoxication. But, you know, you'll also have these other issues with it. And you can kind of tell like, OK, this person's just really uncomfortable. They can also switch to anger because anger is a way like it's a source of control. Um, if anxiety is this feeling like you're not in control, like being angry, I'm going to exert some control can make that person feel a little bit better, although it's not always the best response. And if you're the officer or the first responder or the clinician that's dealing with someone, you have some things that are, you know, maybe are going to be easily accessible for you, but you have to be aware that that person can influence you. So in order to kind of stop that cycle, you want to try to stay relaxed and have a calm and controlled voice. Um, I know times when I've been really slammed and I've had a lot of consults on the floor and then I get the ER page. And so I go down to the ER and someone who is um, 
anxious, maybe a little hypomanic, and so they're talking really fast, I have to watch it because if I go in the room and I'm like, and I'm also talking fast because I've done so much and I'm kind of like in my head trying to remember all the things that I got going on, we're just going to influence one another. And then that's not going to help that person calm down and kind of figure out like what's going on. So trying to stop that cycle and not being influenced by someone who's really anxious by slowing your speech, um, making appropriate pauses to let them really think about it. And this is where, you know, your active listening and your communication skills, I mean, they're good to use at any, but they're golden kind of at this, at this state when you can get someone down to like feeling kind of anxious and okay, let, let's, let's problem solve this. Let's see what's going on. With level two, so this is when someone is angry and agitated and they still need assistance. It's just, um, it's not, sometimes it's just not obvious. You know, when someone's getting kind of agitated and antagonistic, they still need help. It's just not the easiest way where you're like, oh yeah, that person, that person really needs my help right now. I should go talk to them um, because they can be difficult. Um, the physiological changes that they'll experience, uh, increased blood pressure, pulse, adrenaline rush, they may be ignoring requests. Um, cognitively, their listening and reasoning skills decrease. They may yell. Um, there may be name calling and an increase in explicit language. So um, I apologize if anyone gets offended by language, but there is a, a difference there. Um, you know, the population that I deal with, whether it's law enforcement or, or veteran, you know, they'll just use, uh, you know, well, this fucking thing happened and blah, blah, blah. And they're not, that's not them being agitated. That's them using a descriptor as opposed to when they're like, and that fucking person and they, you know, and they're going off on this thing. That's, that's different. And so kind of seeing that change in how the explicit language is used and whether that's a change from baseline. Um, they may start asking challenging questions like, what are you going to do about it? You know, why are you here? or baiting and intentionally pushing your buttons. And the character or um, main thing here is that they do have a slight loss of control. You know, they can be hyper-focused on an area. So if you're dealing with someone like that, the influence that in turn they can have on you puts you at risk for also becoming anxious. Um, and you really want to, once again, try to pace your speech to slow their tempo. Don't mimic them. And the thing is, is we do that anyways. Um, it's a really easy thing to mimic who we talk to. And so it's something that you have to be aware of and you have to stop it. Um, if you've ever been in an argument with someone, it starts off really calm, maybe a little bit of raised voices. One person yells, then you yell, and then you're both yelling. You just escalated one another because you started to mimic. Um, so when you're dealing with someone that's yelling or being antagonistic, it has to be an intentional change to not engage in that. Um, you really want to stay alert, but try to appear relaxed. Um, and so this is sometimes uh, when I do like role playing and stuff with guys, like I'll mention of like, I'm not saying don't, don't be paying attention to all the things that I'm doing. I want you to stay focused. I want you to stay alert because anger and agitation can, you know, um, escalate towards more violent or aggressive behaviors. But once again, trying to appear relaxed, trying to still, you know, keep that demeanor because you want to try to still influence them. And you need to be aware of your own anxious behaviors. Um, it's going to be to each their own, you know, figuring out, are you a nervous laughter? Do you use sarcasm when you get kind of anxious? 
do you have any like kind of twitching or, or fidgeting behaviors? Um, anyone who's had me in class knows that whenever I speak publicly, I will always have something in my hair and it's because my own nervous stick is my hands will just constantly be in, in my hair. And it's just something that I know of. And so being aware of what your own indicators of like, okay, I'm, I'm getting really anxious because that can be distracting. That can keep you away from your goal of trying to influence someone. Um, do you get angry in response to anxiety? And the power struggle, you know, I never want officers or, or anyone to do anything that puts their safety at risk. But I will encourage them to question, like, why the power struggle? Like, why are you demanding obedience? Is it for the sake of obedience? Is it because you're uncomfortable? Or is there a safety risk with it? And always, if it's a safety risk, if it's an issue with that, then, yeah, I, I want you to be safe. I want you to, to do what you need to do. Um, but I'll see this sometimes in the ER when I'll have one of my patients and they're agitated and they're, you know, yelling at nurses or being really antagonistic and not cooperative, you know, there'll be a staff member that'll just, you know, you do this. And, and I'm just like, whoa, ugh, that's not, that's not helpful here. But I understand that you're, you're frustrated and you, and you need to take a step back with that. Um, the interventions, you know, that, that may be good at kind of affecting this influence and affecting this cycle would be setting limits for problematic behaviors, um, acknowledging the anger. So just simply saying, you know, wow, it seems like you're really pissed off. And then someone, excuse me, may respond, you know, well, you're damn right, I'm pissed off, and then start telling you why they're pissed off. That can allow you to do those active listening skills and being like, oh, okay, so this is what's going on and can help you de-escalate them. And because I mentioned the limits, I'm going to really briefly, I know you all probably get this in um, a lot of your training, but I, I love setting limits. I do it with my patients a lot. Uh, almost all the role plays that I do at the academy will have some sort of it. And there are multiple ways that you can set limits. Um, here are kind of the three main ones that, that I use and, and that I have my guys practice. Um, the first one is to check the behavior and check compliance. And this one, um, uh, the most recent example that I have was through a role play. I was doing with an officer and I was being kind of antagonistic and um, really just kind of mean. And I was, I was encroaching on his space and he had on the um, role play, he had said, well, I'm, I'm going to radio and check for something. And I was like, yeah, why don't you get on your little radio and do your job? And just, you know, as I said, like I, that was the point of my, my thing was to be really mean and to try to push his buttons. And he checked me by saying, you know what, you're, you're kind of making me uncomfortable. Can, can you take a couple of steps back? And I loved it. It was beautiful because he explained, he used an I statement. I'm, I'm uncomfortable here. I need you to take a couple of steps back. And it put this kind of fork in the road um, decision. Am I going to do it? Am I going to take a couple of steps back and be like, oh, okay, okay. Or am I going to be like, screw you. I'm not. And then he knows right then I'm not going to be compliant. Like this isn't, this isn't something that that's going to work with that. Um, another type of limit setting is to offer choices and consequences of each choice to aid in the decision-making. Sometimes when people are upset, um, they're not able to really think about this. So I've had guys use this with uh, domestics. I don't know what your all's laws are as far as like, if you always have to arrest or if it's police officer discretion, but there's, there's quite a bit of discretion here. And so, you know, when they go on a domestic call, whoever the kind of main person is, they'll be like, you know, um, do you have some place you can go? Um, because if you stay here, 
I think things are just going to get worse for you or I'm going to end up arresting you. So they kind of like lay out the decisions that they have. Um, I do this with my acute psych decision. I say, you know, hey, it sounds like you're, you're really struggling here. You've been, you know, not eating. You've been having thoughts of suicide. I'm really concerned about you. I think you need to go inpatient a couple of days and, and really get this, this straightened out or get some medication or some assistance. Because if you don't, I think things are going to get worse and we're going to be in a different situation. And in my head, I, sometimes it's, if you don't, I'm going to commit you, but I can't say that straight. So giving them the choices and letting them know, like, these are the two things. Um, another way to set limits is kind of explain why the identified behavior is problematic and what you need. So if someone is yelling, saying something like, sir, I, I can't really talk to you when you're yelling at me. So using those I statements, identifying what the problematic behavior is. And all of this is just kind of checks where you can kind of see like, can this person follow? Do they want to? Do they agree to? Can they understand what I'm saying? And the last level is, you know, if someone is more hostile, if they are violent, um, when it comes to this, you know, it's more irritable, you'll have that increasing agitation, maybe demanding and loud speech. Uh, the subject is very concrete. If someone gets to this stage, like this is not the time for analogies and really big, you know, explanations because their cognitive resources are depleted um, at this moment and they are, they are focused. Um, and sometimes that focus isn't that great, especially if it is uh, more of violence or it's more perseveration, like this hyper focused on um, whether something that's real or imagined if they are having hallucinations. Um, and when someone is experiencing this, the officer is at risk of being kind of influenced into this fear and anger response. Um, some of the techniques to use to kind of uh, address these and, and keep this from happening is to utilize combat tactical breathing, um, trying to get in control of your, your system, um, avoid shouting unnecessarily, so just because that person is shouting at you, you know, if you have a specific command that you need to give out and you need to make sure they hear, then yes. But, you know, just shouting, you'll, they're just going to yell louder kind of thing. Um, when I deal with someone that's really, really agitated, like um, we're about to have to use restraints and there's stuff going on, having a very purposefully and exaggeratedly slow rate because they are so concrete. And honestly, you are going to have to repeat what you say rather than elaborate. Because if you say the same thing to them, but in three different ways, that puts pressure on them to have to figure out that you just said the same thing in three different ways. So just a lot of repetitions. Um, continuous evaluation of the person. And in order to do all this, you know, um, you have to have your cognitive resources. You have to be the one in control of kind of what you're able to assess and, and what you're able to do. Some of the interventions, as I said, about the repeat any type of limit settings or, or any directions, you want to tell them what you want them to do. Um, research says that when you tell someone not to do something, it actually is a two-part command because if you tell them not to go over there or whatever the not is, then they have to be like, okay, well, if I can't do that, then what am I going to do? Like it kind of puts a, a second decision on them. So um, just for increasing the chance of compliance is firmly telling them what you want them to do. And most importantly about this stage is I kind of want to hit on um, what happens to an officer 
when they um, experience the changes associated with anger. So when you're dealing with someone that's hostile or violent or really antagonistic and your response is you get pissed off or you lose your temper or someone that you're working with, you know, how they look is you will also see like the increased blood pressure and heart rate and adrenaline. But the cognitive changes that they're at risk for is the decrease in reasoning skills, listening skills, um, a slight loss of control. And the behavioral changes, you'll notice that the officer or the, the first responder or the hospital staff, you know, they'll start yelling. And maybe they use name calling or an explicit language in a way that's more aggressive and overt. And the problem with that is with this emotional response, you become more concrete and you can experience difficulty processing and evaluating multiple avenues of information. And so when you think as a first responder and officer, what helps maintain your safety is your ability to process all of this stuff and continuously evaluate and figure out what to do and, and, and keep all that. And the more of this emotion that you experience and if you can't find a way to kind of break that cycle and that influence, um, you know, you run the risk of, of having some significant issues. And kind of the conclusion on this, um, and this is kind of what I told my students is, the thing is about social exchange and influence is it's really a game. And the winner is the person that knows it's at play and knows what the rules are. So when you're interacting with someone being like, okay, this is, this is what's happening. I want to talk really fast right now. I want to talk over you. Um, a personal example, uh, when I do intakes and someone is talking really quickly or um, they're interrupting me, if I catch myself being like, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, because I, I can't get a word in, like that's my own like kind of cue of like, Ooh, okay, I gotta, I gotta take a step back. I have to take a couple breaths. I have to be slower because something is pulling for me to respond this way. And um, I think I've heard some of the providers on this talk talk before about counter-transference and, and how you respond to someone um, is a more um, like psychodynamic and psychoanalytic term. And the answer to the first question is you're honestly both. You know, you're the influenced and the influencer. Um, but if you can read both someone's response to you as well as the reaction that they're trying to elicit, um, it can help increase your skill in communication de-escalation, and the management of problematic behaviors. But the key is, is that you're the person in control of that. Um, you know, when I go to the ER, when I'm interacting with my patients, that um, I don't see them typically on their best day, um, I should have the most cognitive resources between the two of us. I should have the more emotional control between the two of us. And that's what allows me to not only evaluate and read kind of what they're doing, but also figure out what steps I want to take. Um, and that all relies on, on me kind of maintaining control and, and understanding what's at play. And that's all that I have as far as the PowerPoint.